Psalm 131 is one of my favorite psalms. I wrote a song about it. Uh, well, about it. I, wrote a, I put it to a tune so that I could memorize it about two years ago when I first started pastoring here at New Hope. Um, and I sing it to myself at night. A lot. Because of the anxiety of heart that a person can feel at night. Especially for me at night. I don't know why. It's really, it's a, it's a great song. We get a glimpse into one of David's spiritual experiences in his relationship with God. It's a song that's directed to God for the first two verses and then to us in the third verse. Only three verses. And, and, and the teaching is broken up into three sections. Or maybe we could say David has three things to say. Each verse he's got something to say. Verse number one, he says, here's what I'm not doing. Verse number two, he says, here's what I have done. And then verse number three, he says, here's what you should do. So let's start, let's just go through that order. Verse one, here's what David says. Here's what I'm not doing. And, and in this verse, he's going to take two steps. The first step is this. He says, I'm not being arrogant. Let me read this to you. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. Arrogant? Does that sound like arrogance? O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. We can pull that off for, for right now just so we can engage right here. Thank you. Um, does, it, does that sound arrogant? I mean, it almost, if I heard somebody say, my heart's not lifted up, I'd think, are you feeling okay? You know, sound depressed. My eyes aren't raised too high. I mean, I'm imagining just a slumped over, downhearted person. But that's not what these two phrases refer to. These are uh, idioms. You know what an idiom is? An idiom is, here's a little grammar lesson. An idiom is a group of words that has a meaning that cannot be understood simply by looking at the meaning of those words themselves. You've got a little group of words, and if you just interpret every word literally, you will not understand what the phrase means. Let me give you some examples. It's raining cats and dogs. I'm in a pickle. Uh... I'll take it on the rocks. Or how about uh, up in my neck of the woods, you cannot take the words literally, I am in a pickle, and get the meaning of that idiom. Because what it means is I'm in a tough situation right now. It does not mean I'm inside a cucumber. So an idiom... Uh, it's, it's just it, it's a phrase that does that whose, that's meaning cannot be derived just simply by literally interpreting the words. And anybody who's ever tried to learn a second language can tell you that one of the most difficult things to do is to pick up those idioms in a foreign language because when it's used, you have to be so familiar with the phrase itself and with the culture itself that. When the phrase is used, you know you're not supposed to take the words literally. 
It has a commonly understood meaning that isn't necessarily clear from the words themselves. So if I say, are we seeing eye to eye? You, I'm not, you know that I'm not asking, are we the same height? I'm, what I mean is, do we understand each other? And if, you, if you're not familiar with the culture, and you're not familiar, familiar with the language, you're going to miss the idioms. Well, that's exactly what's taking place here in Psalm 131. David used, uses two idioms that are common in the Hebrew. And they mean to be arrogant. Now, the way that you can tell the meaning of an idiom is, well, basically by the context in which it's used. So you can look at the immediate context of when it's used, or you can look at other, other times when the, word, when the phrase is used in other places in Scripture, and you can read there and get it from that context. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to read to you a few passages that talk about the lifted up heart, and then I'm going to talk to you, I'll read you a passage about eyes that are raised up. And you'll get the, you'll get the sense like, oh yeah, that's talking about arrogance. So let me, let me take you to Ezekiel 28.2. You don't have to flip there. You can just jot it down if you like. I'll read it to you. New American Standard Bible reads like this. Referring to the prince of Tyre, Ezekiel 28.2. Your heart is lifted up. And you have said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of gods in the heart of the seas. Yet you are a man and not God. So right there, it's clear that the phrase, your heart is lifted up, refers to this exalted sense of self. In this case, to the point of where this person is actually literally saying, I am a God. Your heart is lifted up. It's a statement statement of arrogance. Or it's used also in Proverbs 18.12. Before destruction, the heart of a man is lifted up. Or the ESV translates it, the heart of a man is haughty. But humility goes before honor. So there's an example where the context in which the idiom takes place helps you understand, okay, yeah, this is a reference to an arrogant heart. David says, my heart is not lifted up. He's not talking about being depressed. He's talking about not being arrogant. My eyes are not raised too high. Here's where this idiom is used elsewhere. Isaiah chapter 10 When the Lord has finished all his work on Mount Zion and and on Jerusalem, he will punish the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes, or literally, the height of his eyes. I don't don't know why they, you know, uh, why the height of the eyes, you know, is is, is there a particular boastful look that you can give or I don't know where it comes from but the meaning here is that the the arrogant heart of the king is somehow reflected in his boastful eyes and so in Hebrew when you talk about eyes lifted up we're talking about being arrogant and David says to the Lord oh Lord my heart is not lifted up my eyes are not raised too high I'm not an arrogant man. Now, why he gets away with saying that, because I would be a little hesitant to say that, but in, I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt here. He's writing uh, scripture. I think David's just explaining that in this situation right now, God, before you and I, I am not being a proud man right now. That's the first step that he gives us in verse 1. Now he takes a second step 
and telling us what he has not done by explaining what he means when he says, I'm not being arrogant. This is what I'm referring to. When I say, I am not being proud right now, here's what I'm referring to. second half of the verse goes like this. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. I haven't occupied myself with certain things, things that are too much, too great, too marvelous. David knows that there are things that he can't handle, and he's learned to be all right with that. Our lives are filled with this kind of stuff also, right? Stuff that is too great for us, too marvelous for us, things that are too complex for us to handle. How is this decision going to impact other people? And how will they respond to it? And then how will others respond to it? And is that going to alter the course that we're heading on? Or is this, are we going to stay on course at all? Just the complexity of situations. How long is the environment really going to hold out? How long is the economy going to hold out? How are political decisions that are being made in our world right now, how are they going to pan out in the end? How's this family crisis going to turn out these things are so complex i have not occupied myself with things too great or too marvelous for me david says or how about things that are just simply out of our control other people's decisions what are you going to do <laughs> I have no control over this the weather the postal service I ordered these sandals for my wife for Mother's Day. I ordered them with expedited shipping. Paid some money for that too. And they were slow to get here. I was like checking every hour Amazon. Like shipping, you know, you can track your shipping. I'm like, why are they still in New Jersey? Why did I pay the extra money? Out of my control, but in my heart. Or how about things that belong to tomorrow? Things that belong to the future. Things that are too great for you, too marvelous for you, out of your hands. Am I going to get this job? Am I going to find the one? Will I be able to have children? Will they grow up safe? And healthy, will my health fail me someday? These are things that belong to tomorrow. These are things that are out of our hands. Too great for us. Last night, I laid in bed. I was thinking about, perhaps this week, I might get sunburned. And there's reasons why I'm thinking about that. We're heading down to Florida this week. I was thinking about my finances last night. I was like, I almost got up out of bed and went to the computer to make sure that the checkbook is balanced. I could not sleep because I'm worried about my finances. Those are things that belonged at that point to tomorrow. Do it when you wake up, not at 3 a.m., at least if you have to preach the next day. Um, what about things that are lost in the past? Mistakes you can't undo, things you should have done that you didn't do, things you didn't do that you should have done, things that are gone. It's too great for you. 
Things that are, oh, this is a good one. Things that you are responsible for, but not sovereign over. Things that require you to give your time to, your energy to, perhaps even your leadership to, but are ultimately still under the sovereign reign of God. So if you're a pastor, for example, or if you're a doctor, or a teacher, or a parent, or you're in a relationship, there are certain degrees of human responsibility involved. You have genuine responsibilities. People are counting on you. But at no point are you ever in total control, right? Never are you in total control. There are always X factors. The frailty of the human body. Industry advancements. Other people's decisions. These are things that are too great for us and too marvelous for us. And I could just go on and on and on. I just tried to think of just things that I worry about Things that you worry about that are totally out of your hands. They're too much for us. And David says, I don't occupy myself with things I can't handle. I don't mull over and dwell upon and allow my mind to be consumed with things that are out of my league. It's proud. And it produces a lot of noise pollution in the soul. I'll show you where I'm getting that from in a minute, but let me describe what I mean. I'm talking about the clamor of the anxious, fretful heart. The noise in your soul that keeps you from sleeping. It keeps you spaced out. keeps you heavy-hearted. keeps you irritable because your mind is occupied with things that are too great for you. And when you encounter the unavoidable traffic of everyday life, screaming kids, needy people, uh, noisy road construction, traffic jams, late sandals coming in the postal machine that's not working well, when you encounter the unavoidable traffic of everyday life, you're already so polluted in your heart by all the internal noise that you can't possibly handle pressure, additional pressure coming from the outside. And so what a, what a lot of us do is we end up medicating so we can tone down the noise. We medicate by channel surfing. We medicate, we medicate it by... Web surfing, we medicate it with alcohol, we medicate it with entertainment, Facebook, shopping, food, and you name it. Because we're trying to just do something with the noise. And David says, Not me. I don't have the noise. I don't have the noise. Because I am not occupied with things that are too great for me. I don't occupy myself with that stuff. I feel rebuked by this because I know exactly what it feels like to be occupied with things that are too big for me. And it's sad because I don't even have to be convinced that it's a bad thing. I know it's a bad thing. It feels bad 
I know I'm not in a good place when I start to feel miserably anxious and sometimes even hopeless in these moments. But at the same time, and this is the craziest thing, I do not want to let go. I want to figure it out. Can anybody relate to this? I am mulling over it. I cannot let it go. It's killing me. It's hurting me. It's hurting my relationship with my wife. I'm a spaced out dad. But I keep trying to figure this out. I am fixated on it. Miserably consumed with something that I will not let go of. Can anybody relate to this? I hope so. I'm sure you can. David tells us, this is a pride problem. I'm looking to myself to carry this. I'm looking to myself to figure it out. I'm looking to myself to control this. But David says, not me. This is what I have not done. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. That's that's verse 1. Here's the negative. Here's what I have not done. Verse 2. Here's what I have done. Here's what I have done. And again, he's going to do it in two steps. Step 1. He says he has quieted his soul. Verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my soul. So this is the reason why I referred to noise a moment ago. When David describes what he's done with his soul, he says he's quieted it. The noise was there, but he has pacified the sense of inner chaos. David has a calm inner disposition. Doesn't that sound nice? Peace and quiet. Something about peace and quiet that really resonates with human beings. Something about it. That's why we try to get away with, uh, get away from things and, and take, maybe take a vacation every once in a while. Get some peace and just move away from the noise. Now please hear this. Peace and quiet are far more an issue of the heart than your environment. Peace and quiet are far more an issue of what's going on in here than they are an issue of what's going on out here. You can be at peace in the middle of New York City, which is like the most chaotic place I can think of. Now, just let me say, I'm not blasting vacation. I'm not blasting pulling away to get away from the noise. Um, I think that's a good thing every once in a while. In fact, we're going on vacation this week, first family vacation ever as the Fulton Five, so... This will be a good week. But I, I, I have to admit, I live most of my life in non-vacation environments, right? That's where we live most of our lives. And I must learn to quiet my soul here. Now, I want you to see something here. Notice that David went through a process. He doesn't say, I was born with a calm and quiet heart. He doesn't say, I have a laid-back disposition. Like Philip Phillips, right? You guys know who Philip Phillips is? American Idol? Okay, well, I'm a pastor, I watch American Idol. Uh, 
Philip Phillips is like the he's the epitome of just like the laid back guy. He's just like, yeah, just, it's cool, you know, whatever happens, whatever, I'm good. Okay, David doesn't say, I'm a laid back guy. He doesn't say, when trouble arose, I was calm. He says, I have calmed and quieted my soul. I have had to calm myself down. I've had to quiet myself. And the implication is that things were turbulent and noisy in David's soul for a while. And David had to take action. He had to do something. He had to go to war with himself. He had to go to war with himself. I think sometimes we find ourselves in situations when we can see that we're starting to sink. We're starting to meditate on things that are too great and too marvelous for us. And you you start to feel that funky feeling in your soul like things are getting heavy and you're losing hope and you're grumpy and your your spouse asks you a question and you just kind of you're snappy all of a sudden and it's and your mind is it's there's all this noise 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 growing in the heart and we don't take any action we don't battle we just let it happen you got to battle you got to go to war with yourself. David says, when the noise started to rumble, I went to war and I calmed and I quieted my soul. Now, he doesn't yet tell us how he quieted his soul. He just tells us that he did. But we'll come back to the how question in a minute. How, when you're in that place, the noise is rising, you guys know as well as I do, you're, when you're feeling that, you're stuck there, you want to keep your mind on those things, you're fixated, you don't want to let go, how do you then say, I'm going to quiet that? We'll come back to it in a minute. I'm just pointing out David says he does it. Second step here in verse 2, he not only tells us that he calmed and quieted his soul, but now he's going to illustrate what it's like. Like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. This is a great image. right? A hungry, unweaned child is vicious when it gets near mommy. Right? Vicious. These are not peaceful, calm, pleasant beings in that moment. Baby is chaotic, noisy, flustered, fretful, panic, grabbing, chomping, every just drooling. She's craving something that she does not have. I remember when Lucia was a little baby. It was just tough sometimes for Amy to just sit and snuggle with the baby because mommy is the milk machine. And whenever whenever Lucia would get into her arms, it was like, you know, she's, she starts going. You know, she's looking. She's looking. She's grabbing her shirt and starts fussing. It's, it's just never a peaceful, calm thing. But once the baby is weaned, Mommy's body is no longer the source for food, right? So when the child is with mommy, the child isn't trying to get food from mommy's body. She's learned to be calm. 
when baby is with mommy. That's what a weaned child, the baby and mommy can sit peacefully together. And David's saying, when it comes to things that are too great for me, too much for me, too marvelous for me, I used to thrash about trying to figure that stuff out. I craved control. I craved answers. But now I've weaned myself off of that. I don't have to be in control. And when I face crazy circumstances that are too big for me to handle, I have learned how to calm my soul down. I've not been arrogant. I've not concerned myself with things that are too much for me. I've quieted my soul. I'm like a weaned child sitting with its mother, calm. It's a cool image, isn't it? So here's my question. How in the world did David do this? How did he go from the fretful man to the calm man? I mean, is this just a matter of saying, calm down, self, calm down? It doesn't, it doesn't work. It doesn't work that way. He battled. How did he do it? I think he shows us how he did it when he starts to address us in verse 3. Here's what he says. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Here's how the human can quiet the noisy soul. Here's how you can experience the calm, weaned soul. Put your hope in the Lord. Put your hope in the Lord. Which means that when my soul is proud and occupied with things that are too big for me to handle, it's because I'm not hoping in the Lord. Get that? The reason I'm going crazy is because I'm not hoping in the Lord. I'm looking to something else. I'm hoping in something else. You know, remember just a few minutes ago I said, I know exactly what it feels like to occupy myself with things that are too big for me. I know that I'm not in a good place because I'm feeling miserably anxious in those moments. And at the same time, I will not let it go. I want to figure it out. I am fixated. Why? Because ultimately, I'm putting my hope in that moment in myself. I am going to figure this out. David says, put your hope in the Lord instead. I am in that moment putting my hope in my functional Savior, me. And that's why David says it's proud. It's a proud thing to do that. And David says, I'm not going to be proud. I'm going to calm my soul by hoping in the Lord instead of hoping in myself. Hope in the Lord. Let him manage the universe. Hey, he's got it. He's got it. Your sandals don't come in the mail. It's cool, man. Don't waste your life worrying about stuff. He 
has it. Let it go. Get some peace and quiet in your soul. Get some rest. So how do we battle? We battle by putting our hope in the Lord. But here's another good question. How do you do that? How do you put your hope in the Lord? I mean, we Christians know that this sounds like a good answer, but sometimes I'm so blinded by my flesh in those moments that when you tell me, put your hope in the Lord, I don't want to. That's why I'm not doing it. I'm putting my hope in me right now. So I know it's a good answer to say put my hope in the Lord, but how do you become a person who genuinely shifts their hope? Their hope. I mean, what is hope? When you are really hopeful. We're talking about the heart here. Do you just tell yourself, Jeremy, hope, dummy, in the Lord. And then just... Do it. Just will your heart to feel hope for something else. Is that how hope works? It's not how hope works. You can't tell a person to stop accumulating gold and put your hope in the euro, which I read this morning is not a good idea. Stop accumulating gold. Put your hope in the U.S. dollar. You can't tell a person to do that and expect them to just decide to feel hopeful about the economy. That's not how hope works. It has to be a persuasive option. The alternative that is being proposed has to elicit more hope than the thing that I'm currently hoping in. Because hope isn't something we decide to have. It is the response of the soul to something that appears to offer some sort of desired outcome. It has to promise something that it looks like it can deliver. And when you see it, you feel hopeful. You feel hopeful. If it's persuasive. And in the same way, when we are told to hope in the Lord... That will not be a persuasive option to us unless we believe that the Lord is someone worth putting our hope in, right? Which means that if you want to battle your tendency to put your hope in yourself, then you need to be a person who genuinely finds the Lord to be more hope-worthy. You need to genuinely feel like He is worth hoping in. And if you're going to genuinely find him worthy of hoping in, then you're going to need to spend some time getting to know him, right? You have to spend some time with him. And the only way to get to know him is to set your focus on him. The battle to hope is more fundamentally a battle to get your eyes on God. You can't choose to feel hope for something, but you can choose to set your eyes on something. You can do that. But you need to realize that you will need to battle in order to do it because you're already fixated on something else. You're gonna, here's where the discipline, the grace-filled Self-discipline kicks in. You're already fixated on something else that you're putting your hope in, namely yourself. 
trying to fix that. The disciplined, grace-empowered, spirit-empowered discipline that you need to fight with is the battle to say, I have got to get my eyes on Christ right now. I've got to do it. And if you battle to set your eyes on God, to pray and get in His Word so that you can be reminded of who He is and of what He's done, especially in the Gospel. You can be reminded of the promises that He has made. If you can break your fixation on the circumstances and get your eyes on Christ, then you should know that it is the Holy Spirit's delight to work magic in the hearts of His people at those moments. He loves to do that. You get your eyes on Christ, the Holy Spirit loves to breathe life into that heart. And as you fixate on God in Christ by His grace as a matter of spirit-filled self-discipline, as you begin to fixate on God in Christ, the Holy Spirit will begin to show you the worthiness of your God. He will. His power over all things, His plan to do you good, His gentle and faithful love. And you know what will happen? Hope will begin to rise in your heart. Because you'll be seeing something glorious. Someone glorious. That's how it works. The battle is the battle to set your eyes on Christ. He does the rest. You can't change your heart. You cannot change your heart, but Jesus can. This is one of the reasons why we so desperately need to regularly immerse ourselves in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be reminded of his love for sinners. We need to be reminded that he has brought us from death to life. We need to be reminded that he has adopted us as his children and that he is now working all things for our good. You need to be reminded of that in the middle of the night. You need to be reminded of the promises that he has secured for us. And as we consider these things and thousands more, thousands more, the Holy Spirit will reveal to us the splendor of our God revealed in the Lord Jesus and our hearts will grow more and more persuaded that he is in fact worthy of our trust and we will learn to forsake our proud trust in ourselves and to calm and quiet our souls as we put our hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So mothers, fathers, sons, and daughters, put your hope in God this week and battle to set your eyes on him and become like a weaned child with his mother. Let's pray. Oh, precious Heavenly Father, we want to believe. We want to know that you are worthy of our hope. We want to know it, Lord. We want to be fixated on you. We want to put our hope in the Lord. And as we do that, would you help us to quiet our souls, to calm ourselves down as we hope in you. 
God, forgive us for our pride. Forgive us that we try to consider things that are too great for us to handle. We want to present ourselves to you now as those that you have purchased. You are our master. And we trust in you, Lord. We thank you for the cross which has purchased us. Lord Jesus, you purchased us. You paid the penalty of our of our idolatrous, self-saving efforts that we go through again and again and again. Lord, please forgive us. Change us. Cause us to hope in you.